Hello, I'm Matt, and this is Ghostthropology. Ghostthropology presents discussion of ghost stories and beliefs, and how we share ghost folklore, and importantly, how belief in the supernatural reflects who we are. While I don't know when or where or how you are listening, I hope it's dark outside, as that is the best time for ghost stories. Episode 65, A Conversation with Dr. Justin Sledge. I'm very fortunate on this episode to be joined by Dr. Justin Sledge, who has a doctorate in philosophy with a focus on philosophy of magic. Would that be fair to say? Broadly speaking, it's the what we would call Western esotericism. So magic is one subfield within there, but I, I work primarily in uh, the general field of Western esotericism, which would cover over magic, uh, the occult, alchemy, Kabbalah, a, a wide range of spooky stuff in history. <laughs> I came across your work because of a YouTube channel that you keep, Esoterica. I have to say the first video I saw, I was doing research on the satanic panic. Google directed me to one of your videos, hmm. but you cover a wide range of topics from the origins of the concept of Yahweh up through the development of modern magical traditions. So it's a very wide range of subjects for anybody who'd be interested. And I think anybody who enjoys this podcast would very much enjoy your channel. I hope so. Yeah, uh, folks should definitely check it out, Esoterica, on YouTube. And yeah, we cover, I guess, the tagline, the run line of the show is uh, we cover the arcane in history, philosophy, and religion. And uh, you'd be surprised what is actually arcane. The origins of Yahweh, for instance, are, is actually pretty arcane. So yeah, we cover magic and alchemy and Kabbalah, mysticism, a pretty wide range of, of topics. Excellent. So I have to admit that the reason why I felt inclined to reach out to you was I saw your episode on, well, two episodes that you released, one on what you called the exorcist to necromancer pipeline. Mm -hmm. And I have to say that the term clerical necromantic underground is now possibly my favorite term. It's a great term. It's invented by, by Richard Kiekeffer, so I shouldn't take any credit for it, but uh, a very important scholar of uh, medieval magic coined that term. And it is a great term. It's a band name waiting to happen. Yeah, I tried to convince my band to change their name to that, but they didn't <laughs> want to. So, And then you also had an episode on a uh, book from the 16th century called De Spectrix, which mm -hmm. I found fascinating. And I'm hoping we'll be able to discuss both of those a bit tonight. But I think maybe the best place to start is in discussing this exorcist to necromancer pipeline. In your video, you describe the uniformity of rituals for medieval necromantic practices as a rhetoric of necromancy. I was curious as to what you mean by rhetoric in this case. By rhetoric, I mean they're a sort of a formalized way of talking or a formalized way of speech. We often think of magical spells as ad hoc, as if the sorcerer is just sort of making it up as they go. But we have to understand that these rituals, as I'm sure we'll talk about, were largely formulated along the lines of medieval Catholic exorcism rituals. And because they're formulated along those lines, the the actual way that they speak, the way that they develop the these spells are actually incredibly rote. They're highly standardized. Now, not completely standardized because that would require institutions to back them. 
but you would be surprised at the uniformity. If you look up, you look at several different necromancers manuals spread through Europe, you might pop open one from Spain and one from Germany, and they're remarkably similar. And part of part of what the work I've done is to show is that the reason why they're remarkably similar is because they have the exact same substratum, and that substratum is the literature of exorcism from the from the medieval Catholic world, which again is something I think interestingly and ironic that most people don't realize that so-called black magic is just almost identical to churchcraft. Would it be fair to say that because you have these necromantic rituals and spells developing out of Christian priest activities and priest rituals, that the formation of a lot of magic would be weirdly based in Christianity, even if it is not identifying as Christian? I think it would identify as Christian, and overwhelmingly, yes. Uh, okay. It emerges directly. Oh, yeah, these guys are these guys are these guys are darn only Christians. They're priests, right? And they're priests in minor orders, but they're priests. And again, you have to think about them. These necromancers thought of themselves as like zookeepers. They're people for whom they consort with dangerous wild animals, i.e. demons, but they have power over them because they have the authority of the church to back them. So we, we have to really importantly separate between necromancers and like Satanists. Mm -hmm. There are no Satanists in the Middle Ages. This doesn't exist. But you do have people that certainly bend the rules enough that they can manipulate demons to get things that they otherwise are told that they shouldn't be getting. So, yeah, they're they're definitely Christians, very much so. I think, you know, in fact, they're part of the church hierarchy. What I was getting at was that, and please correct me if I'm mistaken, but I got the impression that a lot of more modern magical texts are descended from these earlier medieval texts. And so oh, therefore, yeah. groups that might not identify as Christian in the modern day may be using rituals that are ultimately derived from Christian. Is oh, that correct? Yeah, overwhelmingly. Yeah. I mean, there are definitely magical manuals that are not of Christian origin, like Picatrix, mm -hmm. which is of uh, mostly Arab origin, but Arab pagan origin. But yeah, people would often be surprised that Wiccans or Thalamites would be maybe shocked to learn that a lot of the rituals they're employing have their origins in medieval Catholic exorcisms. And not just medieval Catholic exorcisms, just the exorcisms are still happening today. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's there's a remar remarkable amount of continuity between those practices. Yeah, I actually had a conversation last year with a fellow who'd spent time as a monk and told me about exorcisms he'd been present for. So they're active. I've, I've uh, consulted on a, on a couple. Oh, wow. The Catholic Church still requires external outside experts to determine whether an exorcism is necessary. And I've, I've, mm -hmm. I've been on a couple of those panels. So my understanding is that part of what they're looking for is, is this better explained by a medical condition? What else would they be looking for to determine whether or not an exorcism was called for? So it's a two things. One is whether an exorcism is called for and the second thing is to determine to what degree, what kind of exorcism has to take place. And you'd be surprised that, you know, the, the Catholic Church is a pretty big bureaucracy, pretty big hierarchy, but they don't have a lot of expert occult people. It's not really their thing. I mean, they spent a lot of, since Vatican II, really distancing themselves from these kind of practices. They have to bring in outsiders like psychiatrists and experts in the occult, but they have a person who's allegedly possessed telling them that they're you know, possessed by uh, the demon Belial or whatever, and allegedly they're speaking Aramaic. Well, they need someone who understands Aramaic to see if they're actually speaking Aramaic. Or you know, they sense. make claims about whatever. So yeah, you you kind of become the that's the right word, the outside expert to sit on the panel. And I'm I'm often very pro exorcism. The, uh, people may be surprised that I'm not a believer in this material. I'm an academic. I'm not a believer. I don't believe in ghosts or demons or or uh, angels or demons or whatever. But I do believe in the power of ritual as a religious person. And I do think that in certain circumstances that a person may be suffering from a cultural specific disease, which is what they refer to in anthropology, mm -hmm. and that exorcism actually is a remedy in those particular cases. 
It makes me think about uh, when I was in grad school, reading a lot of material by Claude Levi-Strauss and others regarding shamanic rituals in North America. And a lot of these shamans were very clear that they weren't actually doing anything medical, but hey, you know what? People seem to feel better and maybe they get better after we do these things. Right, right, right. Yeah. And I, I really love Claude Levi-Strauss. I think he was a great, yeah, I love him. Uh, but yeah, I agree. I think that uh, the power of cultural and psychological suggestion should never be downplayed and that a person may not be suffering from a psychiatric condition and, and, would, and might still require a ritual process by which to work through whatever condition they have, uh, mm -hmm. possession or, or otherwise. Yeah, that follows. It certainly my background's in anthropology and mm -hmm. the ability of ritual to ease people's minds or help them find out kind of where they're supposed to be in the world is uh, fairly profound. I think it's very profound. I think it's a I think it's one of these things where we we talk about the placebo effect and I don't think that's a great an analogy for what's going on mm -hmm. in the power of rituals to for people for whom meaning has become disturbed to reestablish their ability to make meaning. I think rituals may be one of the most important human technologies we have for that process. I think it's a good way of putting it. If meaning becomes disturbed, providing a new way to create meaning allows people to settle themselves again. Mm -hmm. In your video, you mentioned that the exorcist was a minor order mm -hmm. within the Catholic Church. Could you explain the difference between a minor order and other orders within the church? Yeah, so the big difference is that the minor orders have various roles within the church. The major orders, the you know things like priests and stuff, they're the ones who actually can engage in the, the act of providing the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. So people may be surprised to learn that uh, you could do exorcisms all day, every day, and not be able to you know to do the to the Eucharist. And so what really separates the minor orders from the major orders primarily is the ability to celebrate the mass. And that is to say the ability to engage in the miracle of transubstantiation, which is to transform the bread into the body and the wine into the blood. So an exorcist could do exorcisms, which people should also know that exorcisms were much more, are actually very common. Basically, if you've ever been baptized in the Catholic church, you've undergone an exorcism. This is what's called a, a minor exorcism. They typically do it at the door when you, before you go into church before you get baptized. So if you've been baptized as a Catholic, you've been you've been exorcised, which is kind of a, interesting. But um, exorcisms were very common in the medieval world. They they were performed for a wide range of reasons, and so the the big difference is that uh, the exorcist could do that task, which was typically associated with baptism, uh, as opposed to being able to perform the, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharistic uh, trans transubstantiation. Which um, again, I think people think of exorcism exorcism as being more glamorous or something, but people should remember from my my, my non-catholics or even my catholics listening that you know when when transubstantiation happens a miracle happens it's a miracle you can witness every day at a catholic church exorcism is just dealing with a wild animal it's no different than chasing a you know a dog out of your yard yeah i suspect part of the reason why exorcists are seen as more glamorous is film yeah it's it's the movie right it's the exorcist it's that we think of it as the battle of good and evil but at the end of the day i mean that the the real success of that battle in a substantial way was the Eucharist. It was a celebration of the Lord's Supper, and that was the real sacrament. It and baptism, of course, are the real sacraments that help to vouchsafe uh, salvation. Being exercised doesn't, does not vouchsafe your salvation. It's not even a sacrament. You know, it had not, never dawned on me before, but yeah, that's actually completely true. I yeah, just it's, never given any thought. Again, we the way we think about exorcism is often very it's very weird because we we like you said it it's it has a superhero a superhero element to it that we've mostly gotten from movies. But at the end of the day, you you should think of it as, you know, chasing a wild animal out of your yard much more than and that's the way that medieval people thought about demons. They they thought of them basically as wild animals. They're 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 powerful wild animals, but they're wild animals and you need to chase them out. And the way you do it is by using this ritual to chase them out. Well, this makes me think about 
the idea that, that the priest has the authority to do this because they are ordained by the church, not because they are necessarily a good person. It seems very mechanical in a way. It is a bit, you know, and, and this is a very important part about this point you made about them being a good person. This has everything to do with the Pelagian movement that St. Augustine had to deal with in his lifetime, was that there was a debate in the Catholic Church about whether or not you had to be sin-free to engage in the sacraments. And the Pelagians thought that you did, and, and uh, the Orthodoxy thought that you didn't, that any sinner can, you know, I could baptize you. I can, you know, I could baptize you as long as I use the correct formula. I'm Jewish. Like I'm not even Catholic and I could baptize someone. The church is very clear on that. It's the formula that matters, not the person that's, that's doing it. And so, yeah, the form of exorcism is actually quite mechanical, but it's not mechanical in the sense of if that, then this it's, if you have the authority to do it. And that authority of course, is you're being inducted into the minor orders because Peter was given the keys to heaven and earth and whatever he looses in heaven is loosed. And, you know, and so it has everything to do with authority. Again, we should never forget the Middle Ages is an authority-based time period. You're right because you appeal to authority. We now know that appeals to authority are a bad way of proving things. But in the Middle Ages, that is the way you do it. And it worked in legal textbooks. It worked in medical textbooks. And it worked in exorcism textbooks. Yeah, I'm thinking about the uh, various medical texts I've come across over the years, which say something that we would now consider absurd, but clearly it's true because Gallon said it. Therefore, sure. are you going to argue with Gallon, buddy? Yeah, and that's, you know, this is famous with Paracelsus. You know, Paracelsus is the first real medical doctor in the Western world. And famously, what he did was he took the books of medicine and burned them right there in the middle of the, I think it was at Basil at the time. And uh, he's like, yeah, these books don't make you a doctor. Practice mm -hmm. makes you a doctor. But no, this is a very, that's not a medieval way of thinking at all. So it makes him very modern. One of the things that I was really curious about is whether or not being a minor order was a factor in exorcists developing necromantic rituals. I mean, as in maybe they weren't getting the attention paid to them that <laughs> they might otherwise could fly under the radar. That's the position I take, basically, is that they were high enough in the church. They had knowledge of ritual. They had knowledge of Latin. They had the ability to do the rituals. They had the ability to, co to command demons using uh, the, the ritual power bequested upon them by the church. But also they were kind of lower enough down the food chain that they could, you know, they could fly under the radar. And also they could move around. They weren't locked into a parish in the same way that maybe a local priest would be. Oh. So they could move around. And so you might have a position where, yeah, these guys are kind of mobile. They're kind of, they're knowledgeable enough. They can, they know Latin. They know, they're learned a little bit. Yeah, they could, they could be a little bit more nomadic. And so I think that allowed them to fly under the radar. Now, that didn't always work. We definitely know these guys sometimes being arrested, being interrogated, being tortured, sometimes killed, although not as frequently as you might imagine. Because it's important to realize that sorcery in the Middle Ages was just a sin. Just a sin. It wasn't a sin any different than anything else. It wasn't even a mortal sin. Adultery was a bigger sin than sorcery. You could commit sorcery and get off with a relatively slap on the wrist as opposed to witchcraft, which was considered a mortal sin. It was considered a, a heretical. It was considered heresy, at least by the 1450s. And so now this is a, a dramatic difference between sorcery and, uh, and witchcraft. So I know the term sorcery and witchcraft in anthropology, they're not used completely interchangeably, but there is the Venn diagram crossover right. exists. Within your subject, how would you make the differentiation between them? It's a legalistic difference. Sorcery is just using demonic powers to transform the world. So that's not allowed. But witchcraft by the 1450s became a maleficia is a Latin technical term. That becomes a heresy, which is the idea that women, largely women, have signed a pact with the devil to destroy Christianity and are using magic to do so. That makes them heretics. Heresy is a major crime. Mm -hmm. And therefore, that's what separates witchcraft, maleficia and sorcery. 
sorcery is just a sin, mm -hmm. but maleficia, witchcraft, was heresy, and therefore it could be you could get the death penalty for it. And it was often even 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 if the case that you were convicted in the religious courts, you could be turned over to the secular courts and burned. And that that, that did that did in fact happen to about sixty thousand women from fourteen fifty to seventeen fifty. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like the difference is sorcery is something you're not supposed to do, mm -hmm. but it fits within and doesn't threaten the overall worldview of the church. Whereas witchcraft, you're making deals with things that are the enemies of the church in such a way that you are pushing against the structure and authority of the church. Is that correct? Right. That's right. So sorcery is a sin. You're engaging in cavorting with demons to do stuff. That's mm -hmm. not, it's a no-no, but you're not changing teams. You're just doing something bad. Witchcraft, according to this theory, which is called, scholars now refer to as the elaborated theory of witchcraft, is you're switching teams. You're now working for the devil. Necromancers never thought of themselves as working for the devil. They thought of themselves as using the power bequeathed to them by the church to manipulate demons to get stuff. No, that's very different, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's using the power given to you by Christ to basically get demons to like tell you where buried treasure is. You're not supposed to do that, but you're never changing teams. But in uh, the uh, the allegations of witchcraft is that you were changing teams. You were right. actively working on behalf of the devil. That's heresy. So that's that's how that changed. And there's a very elaborate story about how witchcraft developed and how this, uh, this idea developed. And, and there's a very elaborate story to be told there. But now what's important to note about this is no evidence of actual witches was ever found in Europe, aside from evidence extracted through torture. So this entire concept of witchcraft was basically an early modern conspiracy theory. Mm -hmm. And as I recall, you do have a playlist discussing this that I would recommend people take a look at if they're interested in the development of witchcraft beliefs in Europe. To me, it's very important for lots of reasons, one of which we're still dealing with. We are very much still dealing with those kinds of conspiracy theories. These beliefs have not fundamentally gone away. They've mutated over time. The Satanic Panic was an example of uh, an outbreak of these kinds of beliefs. QAnon movement is another outbreak of these kinds of beliefs. William Faulkner, a fellow uh, Mississippian, I'm from Mississippi, he famously said that the past isn't dead. It's not even past. I think a lot of us have this notion that we're somehow past whatever past humans got up to, but we're fundamentally the same animals that we were 10,000 years ago. Yeah, 40,000 years ago. And not only oh, yeah. that, we're still, we're still dealing with the same mental structures too, mm -hmm. that um, you know, us from Europe, you know, we, we've inherited the, the symbology and the mythology, we've inherited it. And mm -hmm. things like the blood libel and other kinds of things have not fundamentally gone away. They're still they're still right with us. Yeah. And sometimes entering mainstream politics, frighteningly enough. Frighteningly enough. And I think this is the reason why when I say people like we should study, I tell people the witch trials are incredibly important to study because we'll see them again. And, you know, the trans panic that's happening now and, you know, uh, the idea that there are these trans people grooming children and things, it's, it's, it's those kind of panics, these moral panics have a logic to them. And if you want to understand them, you understand them through looking at the similar patterns of panic we've had in our shared European experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I never really thought to connect things like that to issues like, you know, witchcraft panics, blood libel, and so on. But there is the basic underlying logic that's nearly identical. Yeah, you know, again, as an anthropologist and as someone who's read some Levi Strauss, structurals, these are structures, yeah. right? It, it, if you if you have a basic understanding of structuralism, you're ahead of the game. These are these are shared symbolic structures that are perpetuated through time. And the better we understand them, the better we combat them. Yeah.
Well, now that we've bummed everybody out. Hey, I, I'm very optimistic. I, I'm, I'm, I'm the kind of guy, you know, I, if I didn't believe that we could learn from the past, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't spend my career teaching about it. And uh, yeah. the reason why I spend so much time on it is I do believe we can learn from the past. And that's the reason why I, I make the content that I do, because I do think that the, the past is our best predictor for the future. It's not the perfect predictor of the future, but it's our best predictor of the future. The more we can dig into, especially the dark corners of our past. I cover the dark corners of our past in a way that I think many people don't. And I think the more than we can get into those dark corners, the better we might be at, at creating a future that we all want to live in. You know, certainly we see certain structures and patterns that do repeat and do replicate and having an understanding that the function of something like the witch trial was not all that different from a lot of what has happened, you know, throughout the 20th and 21st century you know, it allows you to see things. And that's the first step to trying to, you know, put a stop to something is to be aware that it is occurring. Yeah, God willing. With the transition from some of somebody from an exorcist to a necromancer, is it generally, from what information we have, a mercenary move? You know, oh, I can get demons to do things. Why don't I do that? Or is there perhaps something else going on there? So hard to say, you know, we don't have a lot of the, you know, there are no memoirs of these guys, you know, these guys right. are not uh, leaving us like, let me tell you about the time I switched you know, over to necromancy. I think that there's just a logical move there that if you can take a demon out of a person and you can use the power of the church's authority to manipulate demons, why not Why not get them to do other stuff? If demons are really old, they know stuff. If they're demons of greed, they know where treasure is. If all these demons exist, they, don't, they know all this stuff. So like, why not use them? I have the power of the church. Like, why not get them to like show me where buried treasure is or get some woman to have sex with me or, or, or summon illusions or whatever. There's a wide range of things you could do. So I think it's just, I think it is, uh, like you said, the, a, bit, a bit of a mercenary move. I think that the idea is that if you have this authority, why not use it? I mean, who doesn't want to know the Powerball numbers? If I told you I could tell you where buried treasure was, I, I bet you'd get your shovel. I mean, I, I, I don't, I, these guys, you know, I, I don't fault these guys. I, I, they, we're living in the Middle Ages. The Middle Ages was a hard time. The minor orders were not profitable places to be. I think these guys were just people. And I think that people want power. And if they can get power through normal means, they'll do that. But if they can get power through abnormal means, well, they'll do that too. So I, I think of them as just very common. And again, if you look at these necromancers' manuals, it's not like they're doing outlandish things. They're not trying to, you know, conquer countries or make revolutions or destroy something. It's the most banal kind of things you can imagine. It's like, I want to turn invisible. I want to find buried treasure. I want to get someone to have sex with me. I want to summon a great banquet. These are people who are just like kind of hungry and they just mm -hmm. want to live high on the hog. You know, I think when people think of magic, they often think of grandiose magical feats. I don't know. But the, most of the feats in these books are, I want a mirror that tells me the future. I want a mirror that will tell me who stole my cloak. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we shouldn't think of these necromancers uh, as sort of like, I want to summon a demon to destroy the world. No one's trying to do that. They're like, no, I want to summon a demon to figure out who stole my book. <laughs> It, it, it Now, it might seem like a waste of good demons, but uh, these guys are not terribly ambitious in that way. You know, we, this is not Ghostbusters. They're not summoning, you know, some demon to end the world. They're like, yeah, no, I just want to have a cool party. They're not they're not like movie necromancers or video game necromancers. They're very much living in the same mundane world as everybody else. They just have a way of maybe getting the things that everybody wants. They got it. They have a cheat code. They have a cheat code, and that cheat code, you know, is uh, it's, you don't, you know, it's a cheat code. It's the power of the church, and why not use it? I mean, mm -hmm. it's not, it's not allowed. But I mean, again, I'm not Catholic, but I know some Catholics, and they don't always do the thing they're supposed to do. You know, they don't always follow the rules. Like, if you can bend the rules to do X, Y, and Z, 
well, why not bend the rules to get that cute lady over there to come make out with you or whatever? Mm -hmm. And again, this is also before the days of priestly celibacy and not that priestly celibacy was ever really. You know, right. <laughs> That's what I often tell people about medieval magic is that people often think of it as sort of like the black mass where they're sacrificing mm -hmm. babies and summoning the devil. I'm like, no, it's real Christian and real basic. Yeah. Well, it makes me think of uh, conversations I have with people regarding North American shamans and uh, medicine men and, you know, oh, well, they, you know, they must have been these great you know, wizards. Like, no, they were just members of the community and they had a specific function that they filled. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Ditto. People even knew them. I, I'm, I'm fairly confident that, that in the community, you, you knew who the necromancer was and you prayed and prayed and prayed for your kid's cough to get better. It didn't get better. And at some point you like, you went to the guy. Everyone has a guy, right? We all have a guy that like, yeah, when you can't get the thing done, you go to the guy. And he was the guy. He was like, ah, yeah, you know, Thomas, the necromancer, mm -hmm. get him to go do it. You know, and I think that like everyone turned a blind eye to it. The church certainly turned a blind eye to it largely. And I think that again, like everyone, I think in religion who who's religious, they prayed for something. God didn't pick up the phone. Well, you dial a different number. And the mm -hmm. necromancers were, you know, maybe another number you could dial. Did the uh, ties between these uh, exorcists slash necromancers and the Catholic Church feed into the schisms that led to the Protestant Reformation? I mean, if you ask the Protestants, it certainly did. <laughs> sure. Um, the Protestants, yeah, the Protestants were happy to tell you that the Papists were all superstitious devil worshippers and things like that. And, you know, so the, the the Protestants certainly, but we also have lots of examples of Protestant magic as well. So it wasn't mm -hmm. like the Protestants were squeaky clean and all this. It'd be a good research project. You know, it's the kind of thing that I'm not really sure, so I don't want to speculate too much. But we know that magic persisted on both sides of, of mm -hmm. the border of the Hundred Years' War. The Protestants really had their magic, and the, the Catholics had theirs as well, and it was a very porous border in that regard. The Protestants certainly claim that the Catholics were knee-deep in superstition, saint worship, and magic, and things like this. But if you look at the printing, in terms of what books are being printed on both sides of the border of the Catholic-Protestant world, there's plenty of that material on both sides. Mm -hmm. So how much written material do we actually have regarding these rituals? I know in some videos you've mentioned the Munich Necromancer's Manual. What other types of materials still survive? So we don't know. Uh, this is an outstanding aspect of what we have to do in our in our field. We do know that there are somewhere between 150 and 200 manuscripts of magic of, well, I should say there are 150 manuscripts of the what is called the, the Key of Solomon, the Clavicula Solomonis literature. This is the most popular grimoire in the Middle Ages. So we know there are 150 manuscripts of that distributed through Europe. We also know of uh, a couple other hundred other manuscripts of magic that existed before printing. And then when printing comes onto the scene, there's a huge explosion in this material. So the answer is we don't know because no one's ever done exact counting yet just because we don't have the resources to do that. This is a very undervalued field, as you might imagine. But if we if you do the math and think these are relatively minor manuscripts, persecuted manuscripts, no less. This is the kind of thing that would the Inquisition would certainly get their hands on, maybe burn. So 150 manuscripts is, is a pretty good number. If you look at some medieval theologians, they represent less manuscripts than this stuff does. So popular. We don't know exactly how popular, but widely distributed through Europe, a, a fairly coherent manuscript tradition and with enough surviving manuscripts that we can only indicate that it was popular. Certainly enough that there were probably several in any in any town, there would have been at least one or two, and in major cities, maybe dozens. I'll give you an example of how we know sure. this. So in 1398, the faculty and the church of the University of Paris had to, inst had to announce a condemnation of sorcery that went into 30 some odd, I think, articles where they had to go through systematically and say, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. 
And it was just going through every single aspect of magic that you're not allowed to do. You don't issue a proclamation like that unless people are doing it. And so we know that at the University of Paris in the, in the late, very, very end of the 14th century, magic was endemic because they had to issue basically a school-wide prohibition, carefully in, like enumerating every single thing you're not allowed to do. So that's a good, to me, a good indicator that it was widespread. And again, who's getting educated there? Young priests. Right. I mean, and, uh, if folks are interested in this, uh, this condemnation, uh, myself and I've worked, I did an episode about it and uh, my uh, colleague, Dana Trail and I worked through every single condemnation and we did a commentary on every single one explaining every aspect of what they were condemning. We worked through all of them. It actually sounds extremely interesting. So it was a fun, it was a fun couple of episodes. I love really getting into like, like, what was the concern? Like, what, what are you not allowed to do? Like what, you know, when I used to drive from Jackson, Mississippi, where I grew up to New Orleans, I would drive across Lake Pontchartrain and on Lake Pontchartrain, the big causeway there, there's a big sign that says, do not jump off the bridge. And I always think to myself, who jumped off the bridge to make the sign? Right. <laughs> you don't put the sign until someone jumps off the bridge. The same with the the necromancers, right? You don't put these prohibitions if, unless there's widespread problems with it. Mm -hmm. And the very granularity of the of the condemnations make it very clear that they had a very specific idea of what was going on. There's a good chance that they knew who was doing what, but they were trying to cast a wide net to make it known this is prohibited, knock it off. Yeah, I think it's, you know, how often do police do their own corruption probes? Right. You know, never. You know why? Because police can be up to no good sometimes. Yeah. And, you know, what you don't want to do is have is to out the one guy and then the one guy outs everyone else. Right. And so I think that what I think that what the church did, I think what the universities did was say, hey, like, knock it off. But like, we're not going to go name and names. There are a couple of rare exceptions where they did really prosecute someone, but it's a handful of people. And the handful of people that got prosecuted were really up to like, I mean, they were really engaged in some like really public necromantic stuff. And the church was like, you have to stop. And they didn't stop. And so the church really, well, they burned them. So not just being involved in necromancy, but doing so in a way that's going to draw attention to it and possibly threaten other clerics who might be involved might be involved but also the church there's you know there's a moment where the church just has to step in they're not going to let you flout the rules and, and coupled with that like a lot of these guys are also again we're also talking about well-educated often aristocrats who are not just engaging if you're engaging in one sin you're probably engaging in some other sins those sins tend to be like sleeping with people's wives <laughs> you know and it, it tends to, it, it's not just like oh you're engaging in necromancy you've also slept with the archbishop's mistress you're gonna have to burn so a lot of it has to do with not just with engaging in magic, but also has engaged with politics, has engaged with church politics, secular politics, people sleeping around. I mean, again, it's the soap opera of, of stuff. And it's also like you can't flout the rules. Like it's mm -hmm. one thing to secretly in your study, draw a magic circle and summon a demon and talk to them about who stole your cloak. It's another thing to, to lecture about it in public and brag about the fact that you can do this. At that point, the church is like, hey, you're beyond the pale here. This is beyond you cross the line. At some Even point, then you got warnings, you got warnings and you could still, you know, you could still walk it back. I'm thinking of one person who's coming to mind here is a dude named Checo Descoli. There's a famous astrological manual and he gave lectures on it. And he was like, well, I'm not saying you could do this, but if you wanted to summon a demon, you could do this, that, and the other. And I know a guy and, and he would do all, he would say all this stuff in public lectures. And these public lectures are, you know, they're monitored. You're not allowed to say anything you want. You're, they're censors and things. And he was also wrapped in the politics of the time. And the church basically told him, you're becoming a monk. Like, we're going to basically imprison you. And he was like, I don't want to become a monk. And he's like, no, you need to become a monk. Otherwise, you're going to become tender. <laughs> and uh, he chose tender. Well, 
that says something about him. I'm sure. I'm not sure what. It yeah, says. he was. He was. You know, sometimes you burn bright, but you only burn half as long. And uh, Chekhov Tuscoli burned bright. Wow. But essentially, somebody's either a general miscreant getting involved in a lot of no good, or their flaunting of the rules is so brazen that it's going to make the church look weak if they don't do something. Right. They got to do something. I mean, again, right. you the people should not, you know, the church was relatively lax in the many ways back in the day. People tend to think of the Middle Ages as, as really full of religious people and everyone's scrupulously religious and everyone's very Catholic. People are as Catholic then as a Catholic now. Uh, my favorite example of this is uh, one of the kings of England. I forget who it was. One of the King John's. He was excommunicated briefly, and I think he was excommunicated for like 15 years, which meant that because he was excommunicated, his entire realm was excommunicated. They couldn't serve the Eucharist. There's no evidence that anyone complained. <laughs> I remember a historian I took classes from in college talking about Italian local governments having to make rules that if you were going to watch the Eucharist, you had to be in the church for the whole service because there was this problem with people hanging around outside, and then they wanted to rush in to see the miracle, and then they yeah. just come right back out. Sure. People are people. I mean, we medieval people are just medieval people. And the, the, the word we should focus there is people. People were interested in, in getting what they wanted. And often what they wanted was easy, easy power. And if you get it through demons, you got it through demons. So we've talked quite a bit about the Catholic Church and people becoming necromancers through the priesthood. But I want to also speak to you about Despectris, which I think is a good transition in part because it was written by a Protestant who liked picking on Catholics. Yeah, yeah. Calvinist, no less. And as I understand it, the author of this, Lavater, he was directly associated uh, with Calvin. Is that correct? Yeah, his uh, father-in-law worked directly with Calvin to help formulate some of the major stuff on the Lord's Supper and really direct the future of Calvinism. Um, so yeah, and he was not just a Calvinist, but really part of the early Calvinist infrastructure, especially through his father-in-law. If I understand this correctly, and please tell me if I've got it wrong, per Lavater's work, the proper Protestant way to think about ghosts was that they were demons trying to fool you, whereas Catholics might see them as spirits who've been let loose from purgatory to come and essentially serve as a warning and or example to the living. Yeah. So this this is what's interesting about Lavater and De Spectris is that, you know, the Protestant Revolution required them really to rethink a lot of Catholic dogma. And one of the big pieces of Catholic dogma they had to rethink was purgatory. And of course, the Protestants were very much about scripture and, and purgatory doesn't really occur in scripture. And so they had to really sort out, all right, well, if the older, earlier theory was that the ghosts were basically people on vacation from purgatory, sometimes they could be the spirits of the damned. Thomas sometimes thinks that maybe the damned could be used to be let loose from hell to warn people. But yeah, so without purgatory, you need a, the a theory of what's going on with, with the ghosts. Well, Lavater's theory was, yeah, they're just demons. They're, they're always demons. God's all powerful. God could take people from hell and make them song and dance. But he thinks that in general, you should just basically bank on the idea that they're they're in fact demons. But it's not a flat out every time somebody experiences something ghostly, it's demonic because he does go through lists of natural causes for mm -hmm. a lot of yeah. things as well. Yeah, Most of it. In fact, he spends a great deal of the book going through natural. It's a very rational book. And again, this is mm -hmm. also a thing we should really take take seriously these people are smart people they really tried to work through every other possible explanation that like oh it's a it's an illusion or it's grief or you're drunk or you're just seeing things or you know or you're not sleeping enough or you're having a dream like you're having a night terror right he lavater really goes through a wide range of possibilities before he says oh you did see something supernatural but if you did see some, something supernatural it was probably a demon Probably could have been God can do anything, but you should you should bank on demons. Kind of makes me think of uh, some of the Protestant churches near where I grew up, where God can do anything, but we all know how He works, and He didn't do that. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that Lavender's point mostly is that the demons are really, you know, they're really there to trick people. And also, this is part of the apocalypticism of the time. People really mm -hmm. did think that the world was about to end and that there was a general idea, both among Catholics and Protestants, that, that Satan was really pulling out all the stops and that before the world ended, Satan was really going to do anything and that there was a marked increase in, in supernatural evil, whether it be witches or demons or whatever. And this was share, a shared belief among Catholics and Protestants. And this fed into the elaborated theory of witchcraft, if I recall correctly. Is that right? Very much. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, the part of the elaborated theory of witchcraft was that there's an idea in, in Catholic theology, and it was never accepted officially, but there was a kind of a folk idea that, that every soul that gets born, that there's a finite amount of souls. And when that runs out, then that kind of the clock runs down and the devil's doomed. And the idea was that if you could stop that, typically by making women unable to have babies or making men's penises disappear, which was a pretty common concern among witch hunters, you could basically slow down birth rates through plagues and famines and things like that. And that if you slowed down birth rates, basically you the devil could delay how long he was his doom came. And so many Catholics thought of the Black Death and the what we now refer to as the the Little Ice Age, the famines and things that occurred there is basically the devil using supernatural powers to forestall birth and kill people. And so the idea was basically the devil was trying to use the use witches as a way of forestalling his doom. You know, I've over the years heard a lot of you know both pro and anti-abortion rhetoric that seemed pretty reasonable, but I've heard some very strange pieces of rhetoric, uh, anti-abortion rhetoric specifically, that I'd never been able to make heads or tails out of. And now that you've said that about you know slowing down the clock on the number of people born, some of the things I've heard over the years make a lot more sense. Yeah. I mean, again, these ideas are not gone. They are yeah. very much like, they're very much there. And this idea that there are a finite number of souls and that faster we get kids born, the faster it comes to an end. This is an apocalyptic uh, idea that's that's very common was very common in the Middle Ages, still around now. And yeah, like, again, the, the link of women and the ability to control their fertility and witchcraft is very, very strong. And there's still a deep-seated male anxiety about women's ability to control their own fertility and their own, their own birthing cycles that still strikes fear into the heart of men everywhere for some reason. Mm -hmm. uh, and this idea is still very much tied to the uh, conception of the witch. And you still get the idea of women who have these kinds of powers is somehow in league with the devil. Mm -hmm. This has just never occurred to me that there would be this link before, but so many things make some sense now that I used to find very confusing. <laughs> yeah. I, again, this is why I love to study this stuff because I, uh, like I said, you know, William Faulkner's quote, the past isn't dead. It's not even past. These ideas are just, they're just, they're alive with us because they're not connected because we think of ourselves as like, Oh my God, the witch hunt, the witch hunts. That was a dreadful nightmare. We'd never do that again. I'm like, yeah, but we kind of do. Mm -hmm. Some of the underlying stuff is still very much with us. We could go off on an entire tangent about that. It's a huge I think tangent there. Really it's interesting. A, yeah, it's a huge tangent there. <laughs> and also with like, you know, Lavender. I remember going, uh, again, as a Jewish kid, I would go to my, I'd hang out with my friends and go spend Saturday night at their house and we would watch scary movies all night and I would go to church with them on Sunday mornings. I distinctly remember like going to sermons where, and I was in the American South and they're like, yeah, they're not ghosts, they're just demons. Mm -hmm. Ghosts, don't, don't ever think that uh, your grandmother come back to see you. That's a demon trying to trick you. And, uh, you know, I'm reading Ludwig Lavender and I'm like, wow, this idea is. This just became mainstream Protestant theology. I remember my older sister at one point uh, began attending a church in the town we grew up in Modesto with a friend of hers and came back one day explaining that ghosts don't exist. It's demons. It's demons trying to trick you. Mm -hmm. And you know, it wasn't until much later that I realized, oh yeah, this comes out of a particular form of rhetoric from the 16th century, you know, still survives in these, in a lot of places. 
Sure, sure. This is why I think it's really fascinating that most people have never heard of Ludwig Lavater and they've certainly never mm -hmm. read De Spectri, so there's no modern edition of it. But this is one of these, this is why I love doing the work that I do, is that it, this is a book that's had this huge impact on our cultural understanding of ghosts. And it's a book that basically most people have never heard of and, and most people certainly never read. There's no modern edition of it. And uh, I just love doing the work because it allows me to make this this kind of material accessible to people in a way that it otherwise wouldn't be. Well, I was very grateful. I mean, I have spent a lot of time researching ghost folklore. And I, the first time I heard about this book was your video. I now have a copy on order. Oh, Hopefully nice. it'll yeah. get here next week. But yeah, I, I was just fascinated to learn that a lot of these things that I've been hearing over the years seem to have originated here. Now, do you think he was attempting to set out a way to fit ghost experiences into theology? Or do you think he was summarizing beliefs that were common within his circle or some combination of the two or something else entirely? So what I can tell is that Lavater takes seriously people's experiences. He's mm -hmm. like, there are a lot of things we can explain ghosts away, but there's some things we just can't explain away. Too many people have experienced this for it to be just totally made up. So there must be some there there. He can't deny the experiences. He's clear that they they occur in scripture, they occur in people's experiences, they occur in reliable sources, but he has to sort out how to fit them into Protestantism. And I do think that insofar as he does that, he is original. I don't think there's a text prior to him. I mean, literally his father-in-law is working with Calvin. I mean, how many Protestants are there to work with, you know? I think he's really pioneering in this way. I do think that this text is, that De Spectris is, is a fundamentally pioneering piece of Protestant ghostology. I'm not sure what the, hauntology, I'm not sure what the right term is. So there's some real intellectual creativity going into this. It's not simply summarizing beliefs that are current within a particular group. No, I definitely, yeah, I think, yeah, I think it's very much him. This is very much Lavater's on on theorizing, which I think is really interesting because Protestants are known for many things. And one of the things they're known for is splitting on stuff, you know, mm -hmm. drive down the street and see how many different Protestant churches you see. They split on a, on a dime. So far as I can tell, no one's ever really split on this issue of ghosts. Ludwig Lavater's position basically became the default position within most mainstream Protestant churches. Yeah, which it should be said does not necessarily mean that it's the same as the folk beliefs that are held by many members oh, God, no. of the people, but no. No, but and, if and you were to know, ask no more than no more than if you tell go ask a priest if you can summon a demon to find buried treasure, they're gonna tell you right. no, but go tell that to the clerical necromantic underground. So right. yeah, your your mileage may vary. What is official from the pulpit and what people do is often a lot of light between those two. Yeah. I mean, how many churches endorse the idea of the rapture? Not very many, yet it's a very common belief amongst right. North American right. Christians. And a very recent belief, you know, Charles yeah. uh, Darby Nelson or whatever, it's, you know, it's basically, a, it's less, it's a hundred years old. It's a 19th century belief. Now you'd noted a little bit earlier that the removal of purgatory required a way of explaining how ghosts came about. But from your videos, it's my understanding that the Catholics also adopted a lot of Lavater's ideas. Mm -hmm. Did they see any of them as being fundamentally incompatible or were they things that could be easily adopted? by Catholics without too much trouble, so long as they left out the Catholic bashing parts of the book in the uh, Yeah, process. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that what Catholic liked about it was it was sort of a compendium of ghost lore. Part of what's great about Labrador's book is he basically, this is a common thing, is that you kind of go through every classical text and you take every ghost story and put them in one book. I think mm -hmm. people just like that. It's, yeah. it's just like you, you, you get every ghost story from the Bible to classical literature to medieval literature to contemporary stuff, right? Where you get stories from, you know, uh, contemporary hauntings. So I think that when Catholics read it, they read it less as a technical treatise on ghosts, but more as a ghost lore book. 
And so as a ghost lore book, it's really fun. There's all kinds of really fun stuff in there, even contemporary things, you know, even things that happened in the year he published it. There's a story in there where uh, some Jesuit had found out that they were the servants in a house making fun of Jesuits. So he dressed up as the devil to go scare them into being Jesuits. And some guy stabbed him to death. And it was a, it's a funny story. Like it's mm -hmm. a, it happened the year that he published the book. And I think people just like reading those stories. And so Lavater, not only does he provide a really rigorous theological analysis of ghosts, at least from a Protestant point of view, but he also just provides a lot of ghost lore. I, I don't know a single person who doesn't like a good ghost story. So I think Catholics like it just because it's a good, good compendium of ghost lore. I've met a few people who don't, but they're kind of strange. Yeah, I think I, I'm more scared of those people than I am of ghosts. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, one of the things I found delightful in watching your video was your description of Lavender's description of how the Americas were just horribly haunted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They yeah. didn't have enough Protestants over here. Uh, yeah, the, the, yeah, there was a persistent idea that this is a common Protestant idea. Even even people who living who were living here, this was just a demon haunted land, ghost haunted land. I mean, you look at John Smith, he referred to Poetan as uh, more devil than man. The colonists here really lived in a world in which the frontier, it wasn't just a geographic frontier, it was a spiritual frontier. And the devil was in the forest with the Indians. Like they were all kit and caboodle for all the racism and all the stuff that that is, the bigotry that is. But yeah, you have to imagine that uh, this was a world where spiritual warfare uh, was very, very real. And and the reason why is that, you know, this is the last, this is the last bastion of the devil and Christians are going to beat it back, conquer it. And then it's going to be the end of the world. I, I just love the arrogance of it too. It's just like, they're so self-righteous. I mean, it, it's fun to read because it's it's not that dangerous anymore, but it, it it is, yeah, you do get these kind of like one-offs. Like, oh yeah, that's why Italy's so haunted. No, there's no good Protestants down there. That's why all those Gothic novels would eventually be set in Italy. It's the lack of Protestants. No, yeah <laughs> yeah you and one wonders to what degree like that the, the, and we do know right that lavender was a big influence on shakespeare shakespeare basically <laughs> everything that shakespeare did around ghost and macbeth and hamlet he takes from lavender but also the again if you wanted to write books about if you want to write stories about ghosts who do you go to you go to the guy who wrote the book about ghosts and so mm -hmm. every all the early gothic writers were reading lavender so again he's not only important in terms of his religious impact but his literary impact is huge too you know, and it's difficult not to hear in his description of the Americas as being especially haunted because of the lack of Protestants. It's hard not to hear an echo of that in the notion of the place being haunted because of the you know Indian burial ground that sure. it was allegedly built on top of. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that absolutely. I think that so much of you know we think of yeah that kind of Amityville horror. Mm -hmm. uh, what's this book by Stephen King? Pet um, Cemetery. Cemetery. Yep, that that kind of stuff is so yeah, it's definitely lavender infused. The absence of Christianity, Protestant Christianity, there's kind of a, a little bit of a, a demonic kind of thing. Although I will say that with um, Pet Cemetery, it's interesting because uh, in that book, King often gets gets roped into the the Indian burial ground stuff. But what's interesting about that book is that he makes it clear that it, the Mi'kmaq people avoided that land. They, in fact, tried to warn people from going there. And there's the image in the, in the Pet cemetery where they try to draw these elaborate diagrams. And you get the sense that these elaborate diagrams are actually meant to be warnings. And there's an interesting debate in the scientific community about how do we create nuclear burial sites for yeah. radioactive waste to create imagery that will warn people 10,000 years from now who will have no idea what our symbols mean. And I always thought of like that that image in Pet cemetery always struck me as like the Mi'kmaq are trying to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. Like this area is cursed. Like get 
the hell out of here. And of course, you know, like white people are like, oh, wow, let me try to learn more as opposed to like, you know, what happens if you walk into a big underground bunker 10,000 years from now, there's like, you know, big skull and crossbones or whatever, you know, like, wow, let me investigate further. That's an aside for about Stephen King. And I think he's, he's actually doing better than what he's accused of doing there. But yeah, it, it, that whole idea, the, the link of the Native American and the devil, again, a horrifyingly bigoted conception. Certainly Lavater has a part of it. Mm-hmm. Are there other beliefs that Lavender discusses in his book that seem to be a common part of our folklore today? I mean, obviously, we've talked about the Americas. We've talked about ghosts actually being demons. Are there other things that he develops that are still in common use either in our fiction or our folklore that you're aware of? Not that are unique to Lavender. I mean, there's the idea that if a person dies a uniquely unjust death, that sometimes that becomes a site for a haunting. But we find that back all the way back in the classical world. That's, yeah, that, you see that way back in the classical world as well. Nothing jumps immediately to mind. Yeah, I mean, the idea of the unjust death, I spoke with uh, Irving Finkel, the Assyriologist, oh, yeah. and that was something he brought up. Yep. Yeah, it goes back to ancient Samaria. So yeah, but yeah, there's nothing, nothing, nothing specifically jumps to mind. I can think about it a little bit more, but but yeah, I think this idea of like the ghost and the demonic, mm-hmm. where do we draw that line? And again, I think most folk beliefs still want to have their cake and eat it too. They want to have the belief that no, oh, there are ghosts and there are demons and they're not the same thing. Most people are not so rigid as Lavender. Yeah, I know when I began developing this podcast, I looked at well, what what do I cover under the heading of ghosts? And eventually I came to the conclusion that I have to include some demons in there because there's just not the clear line between them that we like to think there is. Sure. And in, in the Catholic Church, you have the concept of obsession, right? This is mm-hmm. possession is often preceded by obsession. And I think that's an important part of the possession process that for whatever reason doesn't get a lot of attention that we focus a lot on possession. But before possession happens, obsession happens. And obsession almost always involves what we describe now as haunting activity. And obsession is almost always place-based. It's where the demon kind of gets a foothold. And obsession almost always includes what we now refer to as poltergeist activity. And I will say, this is another thing The Exorcist does very well, is The Exorcist movie actually goes through that process where the obsession process is happening. Like the weird knocks and stuff and the weird flame. And the demon has to basically make a home for themselves. And they have to do that before they can possess a person. And so the the link between possession and obsession and haunting, it's a, it, there's a, certainly a, a continuum there. And we never talk about obsession, which I think mm-hmm. is a an interesting part of that process that doesn't get the press I think it, it could use. And I think that that may be tied into the idea of the exorcist as you know the supernatural cops or the mm-hmm. superhero figure. You know, you want them to come in at the point where things are clearly demonic, as opposed to when there might be something else happening, because that makes better fiction. For sure, for sure. The Exorcist is a fairly good film, whereas a lot of other exorcism movies aren't. So yeah, that's true. Yeah, uh, and also like typically for Catholics, they they could have had demons off at the past, right? You typically mm-hmm. do house blessings and that typically involves basically an exorcism of the house a de facto exorcism and that is supposed to meet demons off of the past so if the house is under the influence of obsession you get them in a weaker state before a possession can happen and you kind of chase them out in, in jewish lore too often the mezuzot the pieces of scripture that are put on the wall on the the door frames of doors you begin on the interior of the house and you work your way out so the shadim demons who live in the house or they're there in the house you basically push them further and further out until you eventually kick them out the door over the years known people who both christian and also more neo-pagan who've had religious beliefs that involved 
pushing demons out of, you know, a building you're going to occupy either as a home or a business and mechanically a very similar thing. You start in the place that you can work out from so that you don't trap anything in. Yep. Again, people, people should really appreciate how logical these beliefs are. Again, they may be axiomatically very different from what we believe now, but they're not nonsense. They're not, they're not non-rigorous. A lot of thought goes into them, whether it's Lavater or these necromancers, they follow a logic. And it's important to respect them in their logic. Now, we don't have to believe in them, but it's important to like, oh, yeah, these people made sense. Yeah. They weren't idiots just doing something as a cheap explanation. There was actually much more thought that went into this. I used to be really involved with the organized skeptics movement. And one thing that always irritated me was uh, the dismissal of religion as, well, that's just what people come up with to explain things they don't understand. And I always thought, I don't think any of you have actually looked very closely at religion, if that's what you think. Yeah, no, that's a very that's a very uh, impoverished theory of of religion. Yeah, curious. Um, are you familiar with the historian Ronald Finucane? I'm not. No, I, I, this is a this is not a, a historian I know of. He focuses on early modern Europe primarily, but he has written a fair amount about the history of ghost beliefs. And mm -hmm. one thing I found myself thinking about when listening to you talk about Lavater was his argument that in the 18th century, as more specifically non-Christian and you know, people at the time often would have called them atheists, would generally call them by other terms now, belief systems became more common. A fair number of Protestants began being okay with ghosts not being demons because that proved an afterlife and they would find themselves mm. kind of synchronizing with some Catholic beliefs in that way. You know, sort of a, well, now we have a common enemy, which are these atheists. Yeah, no, I haven't, I haven't studied that. And I have to admit, I'm not an expert in ghost beliefs. I'm not a, yeah. a, a ghost expert or whatever. I, I sure. tend to focus on very specific texts. So it's not a thing that I, I know of particularly, but the fact that beliefs change and that new enemies emerge and the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's totally unsurprising to me, but no, that sounds fascinating. I'd love to take a look into it. Also, want to get into this, some early vampire beliefs. The intersection of vampire beliefs and medical alchemy, which was a, a thing in the 18th century in France, yeah. 17th century in France. There's so. a book called it's by Paul Barber called "Vampires, Burials, and Death" mm -hmm. that I think is a good starting point because it points mm -hmm. you towards a lot of the folklore beliefs and how they developed. He has a particular take on it, which is that vampire beliefs were a way of explaining. Uh, decomposition. Right. I don't think he's completely wrong on, but I also find myself thinking, yeah, but you had to have an idea that these people could come back for you to want to go dig them up so that you could see the decomposition. Right, right, right. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious because I'm really interested in, in how, again, like how medical people, especially like medical people in the, in a sort of a pre-Baconian science dealt with vampires. Mm -hmm. It's another. Uh, it's a project that's in the mix. I'm like, I'm, I'm interested in pre-Baconian vampire beliefs, especially in France and how it was received in France. That's where medical, medical and chemical science really were advanced mm -hmm. in a way that they were in advanced other places. And vampire beliefs in in France were quite high in the in the 17th century. So look for that on as, as an esoteric episode, maybe around Halloween. I don't know. Well, I definitely look forward to seeing that. We've gone through the points I wanted to talk about. Is there anything you'd like to discuss? I don't think so. I think that the main thing that I'd, I'd want to hammer home for people is that Western esotericism as a field, as an academic field, I'm an academic. I study this stuff academically. I'm, I don't believe in magic or whatever, but this is, this is an important field. It's worth studying. And 
I would love for more people to get involved in the field. If you're interested in graduate school, maybe consider diving into the, some of this stuff. And if folks want to follow my work of making this this material more accessible, you can always check me out over at Esoterical on YouTube. And you know, I, I try to take the material very seriously. I try to take myself not so seriously. I try to have fun with the material. And it's, it's a lot of fun. And I really would encourage people to study this material, both believers and skeptics, both. I think it's important that we we get a handle on this kind of stuff and you can have a lot of fun with it. And I will say I've watched, I, I've not watched even a majority of your videos, but I've watched enough to get an idea of how you function. You turn some material that could be very dry into stuff that's accessible and often very fun to hear about. So yeah, it's, it's this material, again, it can be very dry, it, but also I think part of what I do is what I call sympathetic criticism. Sympathetic in that I try to make people make sense in their time and criticism, no one gets a free pass. Mm -hmm. And so I try to say, look, we can be skeptical and sympathetic. Those two things can work together. In fact, we're the best at being skeptical when we're being sympathetic and, and we're the best at being sympathetic when we're being critical because you can't really take someone's ideas seriously unless you unless you get in their head and so i like to take you know I, when i imagine like what it was like to be a necromancer in 1450 mm -hmm. what was that life like like how did they do that why would they do that how did it work i think being dismissive of medieval people or pre-modern people or other kinds being dismissive at all intellectually i think is actually it pays very very poor dividends and i mm -hmm. think that the better we understand our past the better we're able to get a handle on our present and the better we are to build a, a world that we all want to live in well, I think that the uh, topic of esoterica is that a lot of beliefs from the past really were not as weird as they look on the surface when you start right. taking them apart. And they're not and they're not gone either. <laughs> no, they're not. Yeah, they're not gone. And I think that the more that we disabuse ourselves, that we're somehow there's some decisive break with us and medieval people or early modern people, the more, the more that we see ourselves as those people, the better. And also the better we can disabuse ourselves of other dangerous beliefs that we might have. And we might, we might even know we have mm -hmm. we can, we can say, Oh yeah, that's a really crazy belief. Like I inherited that from the middle ages. Like, it, uh, yeah, these beliefs are sometimes dangerous. And I think it is good to, to be self-conscious of the fact that they're still around. Yeah. And sometimes you may not be aware that the belief you're holding is nuts until you're exposed to something that's structurally identical and you see it as such. And then you start yep. reflecting on your own. Yep. 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 And so I think this is why this, this material is just very important. I mean, it should, it should just be part and parcel of every religious studies department in, in a university. It's a pity that it's so minoritarian, that yeah. it's so minoritarian, despite the fact that it's had such a huge impact. Well, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I've been thank you so much. watching as the light from your window in the background's faded. So I'd like to let you get on with your evening. All right. Well, I appreciate you so much, Matt. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, I wish you the best. You as well. If you have a weird tale, have had a strange experience of your own, or know of a bit of local lore that should get a wider audience, please feel free to contact me at ghostthropology at gmail.com. That's G-H-O-S-T-H-R-O-P-O-L-O-G-Y at gmail. You can find more at kmmamedia.com. Click on the Ghostthropology link and you can find episodes, transcripts, sources, and a link to support us through Patreon. Spoo!